Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth year? Fourth year? We're still in the fourth year. When does it become a fifth year? I've heard people call themselves fifth year at this position. I would say maybe fifth year. It feels premature, I'll be honest, because I started in (laughs) August, so I should only be able to be a fifth year in August. Whatever you're most comfortable with, Will. I'm going to stick with fourth year for now. (laughs) I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Sabrina Berger. I am a PhD student at McGill University, where I study novel ways to calibrate radio interferometers. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study explosive transients and the galaxies they come from. So you both just avoided saying what year you were. That's clever. Okay, fine. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's confusing in Canada. Oh, yeah, because of the metric system. Mm. That's exactly why. (laughs) You're listening to episode 56, Overpowered in the Universe. And my understanding is that overpowered is video game slang. I don't know very much about slang, and I know even less about video games. So someone give me a good definition of overpowered, please. Ooh, I'll go for that one. I think about overpowered in gaming as that one character that just happens to have too many grenades to throw at the other character. It's also called OP. You'll hear that Mm. on Twitch streams a lot. This is in any game if they have too many grenades, like speaking generically. Not necessarily grenades. It can be, you know, a multitude of things depending on the game you're playing. For shooting games, I know that's that's a big thing. Also, players that are just too talented at the game or tend to be OP. I also think astrophysics, the field we're in, is quite overpowered in terms of science. I mean, we study the most energetic things. I guess particle physics is also really powerful, but we use outer space as particle physics accelerators at times. That is an interesting way of thinking about it. I guess particle cosmology, right, would be the... The junction of the most extreme on both ends. So overpowered is, to me, it sounds like more than just powerful. And this is the way I've kind of always heard it talked about. Hmm. Something can be powerful, but overpowered is like almost unfair, <laughs> like too powerful, right? Right, right. Yeah. Let's see if we can come up with this distinction as it applies to astronomy. If we can think of things that are powerful and then maybe things different that are overpowered. So, Alex, you want to start us off like some of the most powerful things in astronomy? Many people will tell you that gamma ray bursts are the most energetic phenomena in the universe, but actually, I was reading an article that argued that the merger of two supermassive black holes would release the most energy possible since the Big Bang. Oh. So, they do some uh, basic back-of-the-envelope calculations to say that If you have two black holes, each weighing half a billion solar masses, when they collide, they would emit 10 to the 55 joules of energy. And that's, I know nobody thinks in joules of energy, but that's one one thousandth of the mass energy contained within all the visible mass in the universe. Just think about that. Can you convert that into cheeseburgers? (laughs) 
Yeah, give me one second to do the math on it. <laughs> How many calories would you have to consume to equal the... Exactly. That's insane. I guess you beat me, Alex, because I was thinking about the most powerful things in the universe at radio wavelengths. And of course, fast radio bursts come up, which last, you know, a fraction of a millisecond to a few milliseconds. And when fast radio bursts grow off, they're the brightest thing in the sky at radio wavelengths. Making a bunch of different assumptions, a lot of fast radio burst researchers assume that they have energies up to 10 to the 35 joules. So I guess you beat me in terms of the most powerful Mm. thing in the universe if Mm. this is a competition. Only by 20 orders of magnitude. It's nothing. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So these are clearly very powerful, but are they overpowered? Mm. Because you would think there are a lot of supermassive black holes and eventually... The universe will be filled with them colliding. So is that really so overpowered or is that kind of just ordinary at some point? Yeah, it's a great question. The way that you've structured the distinction between powerful and overpowered, I I do see them being fundamentally different things. Whereas overpowered is maybe the most powerful in a particular class that you think of mm-hmm. as characteristically less powerful than the things that you might want to talk about. Whereas powerful things are things that characteristically you would expect to be that energy that you're describing them at. That's interesting that you had that take on it. Mine was more something that's overpowered is coming from a progenitor that's extremely powerful. And then when it reaches our, you know, observing instruments on Earth, whatever wavelength we're looking at, it's still extremely powerful in terms of signal strength. That's interesting. So what would be an example of something like that? I hate to say fast radio burst again, but <laughs> do it. <laughs> this isn't a fast radio burst episode, but we'll also be talking about neutron stars, which could be a progenitor for fast radio bursts. My astrobite will talk a bit about neutron stars today. And there's been some speculation that fast radio bursts could actually come from neutron stars merging, just like gravitational wave progenitors. So there's a lot of overlap between what we're thinking about in terms of overpowered things and what we observe as powerful things on Earth. Something that I found that I think of as being overpowered but not necessarily belonging to a powerful class, it's a galaxy deemed the Baby Boom Galaxy. (laughs) And it's 12 and a half billion light years away. It was discovered in Spitzer data. And it's the brightest starburst galaxy in the early universe. So stars inside it form at a rate of 11 per day per day whoa it's so active in star formation that it actually challenges our current models for how galaxies should evolve that's crazy so that i think of as being an overpowered galaxy wow i would say so not being a galaxy star formation person i don't really know what's the average rate of stars forming in a galaxy the comparison that i saw in this article that i was admittedly skimming through was saying that our own galaxy forms stars on the timescale of years. Oh, wow. So the fact that you would form 11 every day is a little crazy to think about. That's crazy. What did you do today? Formed 11 new stars. That's, wow. that's a productive day. Has anyone ever had 11 children? Cool. <laughs> Probably not in a day. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on to the astrobites, we are going to be talking a bunch about high-mass stars as end-of-life stages. So let's just do a quick refresher on what happens when massive stars die. 
Do you want the quick refresher or do you want the slower refresher? I want the quick refresher. Oh, man. Okay. I want to feel fresh. It's a complicated process, but the basic end stages of a typical massive star's life, as we understand it today, there is a lot of uncertainty, but... We know that stars burn hydrogen to helium at their core, and once that finishes, hydrogen burning begins in a shell. The star expands and cools into a red supergiant, and now it's off the main sequence on this HR diagram that people like to draw. At that stage, the core contracts and starts burning helium to carbon and oxygen. It expands again, and the shell contracts in response, and this is when it reaches the blue supergiant stage. And progressively higher mass elements are fused at the core more and more rapidly so that you're protected against collapse. And when it finally reaches an iron core and stops burning, the core implodes. The really tight packing of protons and neutrons at the core forms neutrons and neutrinos. And most of these neutrinos carry energy away from the system, but a tiny number of them deposit energy at the rebounding shock wave from the collapse, powering it enough to disrupt the entire star and a brilliant event known as, anybody know? A supernova. A supernova. So radioactive elements are formed. They power the light curve of the supernova over the successive days to months, etc. And sometimes you'll get a neutron star left over. And at higher masses, then you might get a black hole left over. But observations haven't really caught up to tell us exactly when each regime should occur. So is that a star with a starting mass of about eight solar masses would be the boundary between black hole and neutron star, or...? People think, yes, but exactly how hard of a boundary this is and what conditions can influence it, still kind of an open question. Interesting. So now that we have the forefront of our brains an understanding of how stars die, mm -hmm. let's jump into Alex's bite. Alex is going to tell us about the overpowered ghosts of the dying stars. I definitely will. The astrobite that I'm presenting is called What Goes Bump in the Night, colon. Superluminous supernovae show bumps and wiggles at late times. It's written by Lindsay DeMarkey. Shout out to Lindsay, who is an incredibly cool person and a great writer. And this astrobite is based on a paper that came out last year by Hosen Zadeh and others. And the major finding is right there in the title. Superluminous supernovae show bumps and wiggles at late times. So let's talk about what a superluminous supernova is and what's doing all this bumping and wiggling. Sounds good. We've talked a lot on the show about the treacherous phenomenological naming conventions in high energy astrophysics. As the name suggests, superluminous supernovae are even more luminous than traditional supernovae. They're the, the OP objects of the supernova world. <laughs> they peak at absolute magnitudes of around negative 20 if you have any reference for what that is, that's bright. And their light curves are very broad. They last hundreds of days relative to tens of days for most supernovae. And like regular supernovae, superluminous supernovae are grouped into hydrogen-poor events, which are called type 1, and hydrogen-rich events, which are type 2. And today we're going to be talking about type 1, hydrogen-poor events. Do we have any idea of what powers these? That's a great question. It's actually the primary question driving this paper. This paper collected a sample of 34 type 1 superluminous supernovae, and they found that around half exhibit luminosity variations in their light curves at least 50 days after explosion. And so the whole paper is about trying to figure out what's causing these bumps and wiggles in the light curve. And that's central to the question of what's 
powering these events to begin with, which might be causing the late time bumps and wiggles as well. So there are two primary theories for what might power these long light curves of superluminous supernovae. The first is that a massive star collapses into a magnetar. This is a neutron star with an intensely strong magnetic field. And the thinking is that this might power the superluminous supernova for much longer than the radioactive elements from a typical supernova would. Okay, so that's theory number one. All right, magnetars. The second theory is that the supernova explodes into material enriched with lighter elements like hydrogen surrounding the star. And that interaction heats the so-called circumstellar material, and we're seeing the light from that interaction powering the event past when you should from radioactive elements. Is there some sort of smoking gun that would tell us we're seeing the surrounding circumstellar medium being heated? Well, the thinking is that the ejecta from the supernova should move outward very quickly. It's an explosion, right? But the circumstellar material doesn't yet have knowledge about that expanding material, so it should be moving outward much more slowly. So if you look at a spectrum of the explosion and you see lines that are much more narrow, then that tells you that the material causing that emission is moving more slowly, and that might come from circumstellar material as opposed to the explosion of the supernova itself. Hold on one sec. Sure. So you take spectra of this event, mm -hmm. and in the spectrum you could have narrow if it's coming from the center, or broad if it's like bouncing off of the gas. Not quite. Okay. The lines in emission spectra get broadened the higher the temperature is of the material doing the emitting. Okay. okay. So there's this line broadening process that occurs. If the lines are really narrow, then you would expect it to come from slower moving or lower temperature material. And so people look for really narrow lines to see if that comes from the circumstellar material superimposed on top of broader lines coming from the ejecta from the supernova itself. Why would the circumstellar material be cold? If the circumstellar material has been shed prior to the supernova explosion, then it doesn't have the high energy engine propelling it outward like the ejecta does. And so we would expect it to be moving much more slowly and be at much lower energies than the ejecta itself. But won't they just get scooped up together? At later times, yes. But at the early times, you might expect you to still see the lower moving circumstellar material in the spectrum. But all that to say, the authors don't find the smoking gun detection in the superluminous supernova of circumstellar material. Sad. So that one's not yet confirmed or ruled out. And so to try and figure out which of the two is causing the late time bumps, the authors estimated the spin and the ma magnetic field strength of a potential magnetar, and then the ejecta mass and the ejecta velocity from the supernova and they looked for any correlations of these parameters with characteristics of the late time bumps. So if you find these things are strongly correlated, then maybe it is the magnetar powering the late time bumps. And if it's circumstellar material, then the authors then create some simple models to estimate how much material you might need in the circumstellar medium to cause some of these bumps. And the major result is that the authors argued there's a weak correlation. It's, it seems weak. It seems very weak. They actually call it mild. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know if that's statistically rigorous to call it mild, but... It's the salsa scale. It's, it's underpowered. Yeah, the salsa scale. Mild salsa. Yeah, my favorite. Between the rise time of the explosion and the time at which a bump occurs. 
But this is actually really cool because if you make some assumptions about how supernova ejecta should cool, at some of the times when you get these bumps, the material that's exploded outward would have cooled to around 7,000 Kelvin, okay? 6,000 to 8,000 Kelvin, around that range. Mm. And this is this critical recombination temperature of oxygen. So it's possible that oxygen that is produced in the explosion cools, recombines, and becomes optically thick, and so starts absorbing more energy from the central magnetar, which heats it up more, and that heating you see then emitted outward as a little bump in the late time light curve. It's insane. Something so powerful turning into these little bumps. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. Totally. I just can't get over if the correlation is that weak, and we know correlation doesn't mean causation. A weak correlation doesn't mean anything. I'm, I'm a little skeptical that they could draw this conclusion. I think that is completely fair. The authors admittedly do not say that they have any conclusive final picture of what's going mm-hmm. on. They offer some evidence. They offer some hypotheses. And I will say that it's still a topic of very active development and that other papers are coming out. I think one came out on Friday, actually, proposing a different mechanism for the late time wiggles. So people are still thinking about this from a lot of different directions. That sounds cool. I mean, someone's got to start somewhere, right? Right. The main takeaway from the paper is that there are wiggles. You might be able to explain them. You might not be. But there are wiggles, which is not something that was fully confirmed before. But now it seems like there's actually a statistical sample of objects for which this is the case. And now it's the job of theorists to propose different mechanisms and to try and catch up to the observations that we don't fully understand yet. Okay. Sorry, can I ask a super dumb supernova question? Go for it. Why oxygen? Why are we using oxygen to probe the supernova? That's actually a great question. So from spectra that we do have from superluminous supernovae and theory, we know that actually oxygen is the main component in the ejecta of superluminous supernovae. This is not true in general with supernovae, but for superluminous supernovae specifically, you would expect a lot of oxygen, which is why they tried to connect it in this case to the recombination temperature, which weak correlation may be a little bit of a stretch, but in any way is physically motivated given the event that they're looking at. Interesting. Hmm. Is it both of these explosion mechanisms? Is it neither? We don't really know. We just have some interesting data, but it does provide a pretty compelling motivation for studying these events in more detail at late times. Thanks for sharing that astrobite, Alex. For sure. I definitely need to brush up on my supernovae knowledge. That's how I always feel. (laughs) (laughs) But not right now, because I think it's time now for Will to bring us something, right, Will? Indeed. Now it's time to over-exaggerate our overpowered and overindulgent overlord space sound. All right, close your eyes, and I'm going to play for you an incredibly amazing sound like you've never heard before. A lot of build-up. I could fall asleep to that. 
I was so soothing. It's like ocean waves lapping at a beach. Yeah, putting you in the mood for your summer beach vacation. <laughs> what do you think, Sabrina? Hmm, I don't know. I got stellar wind vibes. Some sort of, you know, pulsar wind nebula type of thing. Maybe I'm super off. I'm sorry. I'm new to this sonification thing, so I could be super <laughs> off. I'm probably really off. Sorry. <laughs> Winds is a good one. I I do think it's like counting statistics of some cyclic process. Mm. So maybe like in an orbit passing through a particular magnetic field or something like that. Or I don't know. I'm speaking vaguely. What is it, Will? You guys, you didn't follow the news this week at all? This is the sonification of the radio image of Sagittarius A-star, the supermassive uh, black hole at the center of the Milky Way. How do you sonify that? <laughs> I don't understand. It's really cool. The image is from the Event Horizon Telescope, and the sonification was done by Matt Russo and Andrew Santagita at System Sounds. So we use their sonifications a lot. Mm-hmm. They did an unbelievably quick turnaround for this sonification. And the way that they did it is they sweep around like a clock hand, clockwise around the image. Oh, I see. And so that's why you hear the cyclic thing. You heard that. Nice. Well, those are the three different lobes of the Mm. uh, black hole picture. And so this, I mean, this is an unbelievable feat of engineering and data processing. The picture or the sonification? (laughs) The picture. (laughs) (laughs) The sonification is great, don't get me wrong, but the picture is absolutely groundbreaking. The Event Horizon Telescope is like someone said, how about we make a telescope the size of the Earth? And everyone's like, okay, sure, we can do that. And then they did it. And now we have it. It's an unbelievable combination of some of the best radio telescopes around the world. You put them together, the magic of interferometry, and boom, we can see the center of our galaxy. No one's ever seen it before. And, you know, what's next? I, you know, if they can do this, they can do just about anything. It's insane. I'll never forget the image of Katie Bowman popping up in my newsfeed when she first plotted mm, the image oh, yeah. of the first black hole viewed with the Event Horizon Telescope. Incredible. I will say for a picture of such an overpowered process, a black hole, supermassive black hole, right? That's an incredibly soothing space sound. <laughs> it's very true. I think it accurately reflects the image, hmm. which is, I mean, it's pretty blurry. Let's be real from what we would expect to see but it is unbelievable when you think about how hard it is to observe Mm -hmm. they have this great quote in the press release it appears to us to have about the same size in the sky as a donut on the moon how unbelievable is that crazy that's almost larger than i would have intuitively expected but maybe i'm just so used to small scales (laughs) (laughs) you're like oh i thought they could have done better than that that's interesting it's on the ant on the moon no no but A donut on the moon, you know. (laughs) Pretty obvious. (laughs) Well, thank you for the space sound, Will. Absolutely. That's a great choice. So now we're going to hear from Sabrina, who is going to tell us how to keep our personal data safe the easy way. By using pulsars, of course. Yeah, I'm super excited that Alex's astrobite talked a bit about neutron stars today as well. Or I guess the ultra-magnetized version of neutron stars. Here we're going to be talking more about pulsars. All pulsars are neutron stars, but not all neutron stars are pulsars. 
So pulsars are these highly magnetized, rapidly rotating neutron stars that emit beams of radiation that are sometimes directed towards Earth. So the almost overused metaphor now is this cosmic lighthouse, and Earth is the ship. So I'll be presenting the astrobite called pulsars, the key to secure encryption. I was really excited when I saw encryption and pulsars in the same title. This astrobite was written by Graham Doskotch, and it's based on the paper Physical Publicly Verifiable Randomness from Pulsars. And I'll dive into each of those words in a bit. The first author is J.R. Dawson at CSIRO in Australia. And this was submitted to Astronomy and Computing in January 2022. So cryptography is when you scramble data such that adversaries can't understand it. It's been around for over a thousand years. People have been developing ways to encrypt information. One of the first examples of cryptography was done by two Arabic scholars, Al-Farahidi and Al-Kindi, in about 700. And they wrote some of their works on simple substitution ciphers. And of course, the classic encryption project was broken in World War II called Enigma. It's actually the basis for the movie The Imitation Game. So Alan Turing breaks Enigma. Excellent movie. Yeah, it's amazing. It was actually one of my first computer science projects in undergrad. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. Wow. I never knew that it would be coming up again in my astronomy life. (laughs) (laughs) So the central question for this astrobite is whether two different observers on Earth could generate the same random number from observations of a pulsar. There are actually many other modern cryptography techniques that use these huge random numbers to generate encryption keys. The main difficulty lies in attaining publicly verifiable randomness. So I said I'd get back to this, since the paper uses this term, publicly verifiable randomness, or PVR. PVRs are defined such that anyone can confirm that the source generating the number is truly random, but no one could influence the output. As you might expect, a novel PVR source could be pulsars, right? We can't manipulate any astrophysics going on in the pulsar, at least not yet. We can't publicly manipulate pulsar emission, Yeah. but it's also not entirely obvious to me that we can create random numbers from pulsar emission. How do you get from one to the other? Mm. Yeah, so the authors develop three techniques to do this. They pick two pulsars. They pick a millisecond pulsar and a slower spinning pulsar. And they take observations from both parks and FAST, so some of the best radio single-dish telescopes in the world. FAST is the largest, Mm -hmm. right? 500 meters. And they tested three ways of doing this. All three use the flux density. We can think about flux density as radiation in a narrow frequency band landing on the surface area. It's just a fancy way that radio astronomers define strength of a signal. So the way they do this I'll go through the three ways. Mm-hmm. The first one is they compare the flux density of a pulse from the pulsar with median flux density of that pulsar. And they set the binary output to one if the pulse was stronger than the median flux and zero if it's weaker. The second way they do it is they take what's called block medians. They count up how many pulses in 100 pulses were over or above the median flux density. If more pulses were over than under in that 100 block, then the bit equals 1 and it equals 0, vice versa. 
The last way they do it is they find the largest difference in flux density between pulses in a block of 100 pulses. If the most drastic change was in the first half of the block, then the bit equals zero and bit equals one otherwise. So this method is reliant upon our inability to understand the underlying physical processes that power pulsars. Is that true? If we have a good physical model for when it should be a stronger signal or a weaker signal, then in theory, you could predict what this sequence of random numbers would be, right? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's a bit contradictory to the way I think a lot of people think of pulsars, since pulsars can have pulses that are emitted at such precise times that they can be thought of as clocks. Mm -hmm. But there is random variability in the strength and shape of pulses from the pulsar, so much so that they're able to actually do this. Interesting. Huh. So this is a really interesting thought because if you could get random numbers from the pulsar, then two people really far away would see the same pulsar. But the randomness is also influenced by the atmospheric scattering and the instrument you know, read noise and your computer noise, like there are all sorts of little things that could change a bit. So how do they make sure that it isn't like noise that's going to screw you up? That's a really great question. The authors don't actually calibrate the flux densities fully to extract a Jansky measurement of the flux densities, but they find that the second and third methods that I mentioned are actually error-free in measuring oh. this random number from both fast and parks. So that's the block median and the largest difference in flux densities. I'm so skeptical of that. Nothing is error free. You were skeptical of mine too, Will. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical today. <laughs> when you're hosting, you can be skeptical. By error free, I think they just mean the same random number. So it's a lot easier to okay. extract the same random number versus, of course, you're totally right that fast and parks are in different hemispheres and seeing a very different part of the sky when they're observing. So it makes sense. But luckily, they're extracting something that they hope is sort of instrument independent. I totally see your point. If the signal to noise is really high, then even if there's a lot of noise, there's still a lot more signal. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So then what did they do with this technique? So they tested out all of these methods from both simulations and observations, and actually all the methods passed almost all of their randomness tests. So they passed that uh, PVR test, or publicly verifiable randomness. Hmm. Of course, they're inherently random in that they can't be influenced, right? Again, these are astrophysical signals. So that sort of checks off one of the boxes for being PVR, and then they also passed their other randomness tests. The second and third methods, as I said before, were error-free. However, there's definitely a bit of a skeptical feeling towards the end of this astrobite. Pulsars probably won't become our key to solving cryptography. Their flux densities are just way too small. Also, you can only use pulsars that are visible to the same parts of the world at a given time. Sure. You'd have to have telescopes that are looking at the same pulsar at any given time. So if you have instruments on opposite sides of the Earth, that would be impossible to view the same pulsar, and you couldn't generate these random numbers with this method. Unless you use a really big mirror. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> also, the group only used flux density, so they didn't think about other random properties of pulsars. So definitely timing wouldn't be one, but there are definitely other random properties that you can extract from observations of pulsars. They just chose to use signal strength initially. 
since we're getting speculative here, I wonder if you could come up with some kind of signal, gravitational waves or neutrinos or something that could propagate Ew. through the Earth with minimal interaction so that you wouldn't have to be localized to the same region of the sky to be able to recover a similar signal. That's a fun idea. That's interesting. I don't know. There's so many pulsars that have been discovered. I feel like pulsars are kind of like the exoplanets of radio astronomy. We're starting to think about novel ways to use pulsars just because, you know, no one's ever going to live on a pulsar. We're not thinking about habitability. But there are 3,000 pulsars. They only try these with two of the known pulsars. So we're leaving out many candidates that could potentially do this in a better way. And the authors mentioned that this could be useful on smaller networks with shorter baselines, right? Where you would actually be able to see the same pulsar from both of the instruments. Excellent. Well, thank you for bringing us that astrobite. Yeah. That brings us to our one sentence summaries. Alex, do you want to lead us off? Sure. A bump from clumps of oxygen might show up in superluminous supernova light curves, but without more data, the picture is still a little opaque. I love the rhyme. Bump from clump. Lump from clumps. Feeling like Dr. Seuss over here. What do you think, <laughs> Sabrina? What's yours? Pulsars provide an interesting connection to cryptography that we haven't seen before in astrophysics. And this byte describes the first attempt to harness some of Pulsar's encrypting power. However, Pulsar's fall short in terms of visibility and signal strength. Very nice. Thanks. Okay, so thinking about astronomy in terms of this overpowered idea, does this fit or should we just use a better term to describe what we're talking about? I feel like it's so difficult because it's relative between subfields and wavelengths of astrophysics that we really can't call something overpowered at one wavelength and it still be considered overpowered at another wavelength in all cases. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. It kind of reminds me of our episode where classifications crumble. Hmm. Right. Because it is a useful basis for comparison to other things that are less energetic in the way that we observe them. Whether that reflects like tales of a distribution is unclear relative to like some fundamentally different process maybe it's completely wrong but at least it gives you something to start comparing against and thinking about and then when it comes time for you to break that classification and think about that overpowered object in a distinctly different category then you're able to do it at that time i think you're right when we talk about overpowered in the sense of gaming it sort of implies intent right the game designer designed it a certain way but didn't realize how it was going to be used and then a character is overpowered and they have to change it later or something like that. And maybe it's wrong to use language of intent in talking about the universe, but we do this all the time. Metaphors like things being eaten or dying. We talk about the ways that black holes like to collide. You know, we just, we just use language of intent without even thinking about it. Is this okay? Like, as science communicators, is this something that helps people get drawn into astronomy and makes it a more approachable subject, or are we being disingenuous? To me, it seems twofold. Something else that I was thinking about as you were discussing this, Will, is how the overpowered parts of populations of astrophysical phenomena are always the ones that are in nature or science. They get a lot of attention. Totally. But I think there's a lot of luck that comes with discovering that, and there's really interesting work going on across the population. So I think that sometimes... The overpowered things do overshadow really interesting research and just sort of make astronomy more appealing for the public 
they make great content for popular news articles, but sort of overshadow other great science going on. That's just one take, though. I totally agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I think that a lot of the way that astronomical research gets funded is based on sensationalist news articles that pick up senators' eyes. And Mm -hmm. if you're not pitching a habitable exoplanet, then you're probably talking about the most energetic thing that you could ever observe. You know, you have to hype it up in some way. And typically the lowest energy object in a class doesn't get people as excited about the highest energy thing in a class. And so that just ends up framing what we study. But it would be, I think, a really interesting avenue to go down to start thinking about how science would be different if we prioritize instead those lowest energy events Mm -hmm. and the physics that they contain. Low energy doesn't mean low interest, right? I mean, there could be very interesting science and groundbreaking science in low energy studies. It's just another tale of a distribution. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Maybe the most boring thing is like the most mundane, the thing that happens the most in the universe And, you know, we've talked about this before. The first exoplanet discovered, the first of a class, that's its own paper. But once there are 5,000 of them, another hot Jupiter is not its own paper. Maybe not even another 10. Unless it's the hottest Jupiter. Exactly. (laughs) So people want to find the hottest Jupiter. And it's tough for everybody because there's not as much to talk about when it's a lot of the same. But if you continue to discover, that's where the real meat of the physics is going to be learned, right? Yeah. It is kind of funny in the way that you see abstracts getting written where you can tell that people are just looking for a way to pitch it such that this object is unusual. Mm -hmm. Like the most unusual portion of the distribution along some axis. And like they've made up their own very contrived axis just to make it seem really bizarre, you know? Yeah. So I feel like it does help connect people with astronomy because those are the kind of news articles that draw people in. Mm. But it's disingenuous in that. There's way more to science than just doing the most unique part of each population. I'll also just add, you talked about language of intent. I think anthropomorphizing sources is something that fundamentally we will never get around. Just thinking of them as things that operate on other things. I think that's just like the type of analogies that people like to use. And in some ways it's valuable and in some ways it's kind of silly, but... I do think that it helps people conceptualize exactly what's going on because that's how a lot of people like to think about things. I think you're right. I think we don't have to run away from it, but we do have to tweak the language we use and be careful. There's a big push in Astrobytes now to phase out violent language. And I think sometimes you realize these metaphors may not be so great for everybody to hear. And we could retire the ones that no longer work and come up with some new ones. And it'd be great to retire some names of objects that don't really work, right? And sort of restructure the conventions to actually make sense with physics. But that's easier said than done. Once the names are used in enough papers, then it becomes virtually impossible to change them. Yeah, you shouldn't need trigger warnings for papers you're reading in AppJ. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Very true. I'll offer one last thought, which we may cut or not, but in some sense, every researcher at a certain level is overpowered in that, for example, I am like the only person doing my specific research. So I am the most overpowered in this specific skill set and implementation, just as you both are in your specific disciplines. And so I think there's something to be said about being an expert makes you overpowered. And that could be your uh, mantra for the day. Hmm. It's a beautiful takeaway. 
think I'm going to need both of you to explain again to me what overpowered means in this context. <laughs> overpowered scientist. And with that, we will conclude episode 56 of Astra Soundbites, Overpowered in the Universe. If you'd like to read about the two astrobytes we talked about today, or listen to that space sound again, check out the links in the show notes. And of course, you can hear all of our fabulous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Let's give it up for Sabrina on her first episode, who killed it in presenting an astrobite. And we're really proud of you, Sabrina. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. And I'm excited to do more of these. I feel like I already learned so much. And as always, don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I just started thinking in terms of the most powerful things in the universe. And uh, number one on my list is love. (laughs) Oh, no. I hate that I just said that on the air. Definitely cut that. (laughs) 